What a great weekend. Some of you have asked, when are we going to do that again? We do this a couple times a year, but we actually baptize every month. If, if you or someone you know wants to be baptized, we have a couple different locations where we do this. Otherwise, uh, probably sometime in the early year next year, we'll do it again. But a lot of good things, just uh, great things that are coming out of our congregation. I mentioned um, some weeks ago when I preached, I think uh, last month, uh, we had this opportunity. We were invited to go to uh, Lyman High School just around the block here and, and feed the JV and freshman football team. Um, had an amazing response, again, from this congregation. Um, all the meals have been sponsored. And in fact, what's really cool is in addition to uh, Lyman, Lake Howell called us up and said their freshmen could use a little boost before the games. Winter Springs, um, we were just there earlier this week uh, with their JV team and sometimes their varsity team on Fridays. Just an amazing way to be on campus, uh, get to know the coaches, be around some parents and volunteers, and, and see some students while we're out there. Yeah, we get to see them after school and interact with them, and just watching what God is doing in and through this congregation. It's amazing the way the Holy Spirit is continuing to take the good news of Jesus out from this space, and it's this congregation that's doing that. And so, being engaged, uh, being fully alive in Jesus is what we're all about. And we're going to continue, even in this series that we're going to do for a few weeks on Psalms. Uh, Pastor Vernon will be preaching next weekend, Pastor Matt the weekend after, looking at several different Psalms. We'll start a new series um, after that. But right now, we're going to just kind of focus in and settle in a little bit on Psalm 121. And so let's take a look at that. If you have your scriptures, you can take those out, um, open up your Bible to Psalm 121, or if you have your worship guide, it's in there as well. What you're going to find is when you open up your Bibles in most of our, our translations, it will give you the psalm number, but it'll also give you um, a, a tagline, a song of ascent. What does that mean? What were songs of ascent? Well, basically, as you might remember when we opened up this, this series, Every Beat, a couple months ago, there's 150 psalms, right? 150 chapters. It's not the longest book. I mean, by word count, it's not the longest book in the Bible. It would seem that way because it has the most chapters. Uh, but actually, Jeremiah has the most word count. Genesis is number two. Psalms number three. 150 chapters. The songs of ascent are basically 15 uh, songs that are right there, chapters 120 to 134. They're all short, and they're basically describing the journey that the Israelites were going through. There's several ways that, that biblical scholars have studied and looked back and seen uh, the way these psalms were used. These were pilgrim songs. So there's a, a few ways that, that these Israelites would sing them. One is as they would approach and enter the temple, the temple had 15 steps leading up to the entrance. And so uh, these psalms were often sung one step at a time. They would sing Psalm 120, and then Psalm 121, and then Psalm 122, all the way up the steps as a way of remembering God's faithfulness and what God has done on their journey. A couple other ways that these psalms were used is the Israelites would be traveling to Jerusalem. Every year there were several annual feasts that, that would lead them to travel back to, to that city. Uh, and so these psalms of ascent were used as songs as they traveled, or another place that they were often used is, uh, you might remember from some of your Old Testament history that um, the Israelites were taken captive by Babylon, and on their journey back to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. And if you think about it, 
we're kind of the same way. I mean, anthems, you know, we have our songs, we have our chants, our choruses, whether that's in the liturgy of what we do on the weekends when, when we're actually gathered together uh, in a church service. But we actually do this in a lot of ways as people, even in non-Christian settings, right? We sing the national anthem. Um, I thought this was last year. Lady Gaga was two years ago, was pink last year. We get together and we sing and declare our allegiance, our passion for our country. All countries do this. Uh, we, we also have these great moments of singing and celebrating around uh, the new year, the dropping of the ball. And you've probably been maybe in a city where you've gathered with people and just you've looked back uh, at, the, at the year and you're looking at what God's doing this year and anticipating what's next. And there's songs that are sung and celebrations. Maybe here in Central Florida, Vamos Orlando, um, Orlando City Soccer, if you've ever been to one of these matches, uh, we've got a great stadium, one of the best in the country. There's this, uh, at, the, at one end of the field behind uh, the goalpost, there's this place called The Wall, and it's where this fanatical group of people sing before the game starts, uh, during the game, when the game's over, drums and uh, flags, and there's a lot of, of you know, this declaration of their allegiance to our local club. Maybe you've traveled and you've sung some songs on your, your own travel to your own destination, right? Some car karaoke. Um, you know, think back to some of the songs that maybe you sang uh, as a family. Um, you know, the, let's see, the wheels on the bus go round and round, yeah. Um, 99 bottles of Coke on the wall, right, yeah. Um, 99 bottles of Coke, take one down, pass it around, right. Um, I love to sing. While traveling, it passes time, you know, and you get to sing about all these great songs and themes and things, and everybody gets to take turns kind of picking songs. I was doing this with some friends um, not too long ago. We were driving. Um, I was in the passenger seat, and I was just singing and just kind of having, you know, a great time. And, and the driver, who, you know, had control of, uh, of the songs, turned it down. And, and asked me, who sings that song? And I said, that's, that's Coldplay. And they're like, yeah, let's keep it that way. Um, I was like, oh, okay. Um, so, you know, not all singing is appreciated the same way, right? Um, some of us like to actually listen to the real band, not the person next to us. Um, but these songs have a way of going with us, music anthems, these chants, these declarations. It was the same for the Israelites. They would gather together and they would move together. Um, and as we go through this psalm this morning, you're going to see some of the ways that these songs were so critical in reminding them of God's faithfulness along that journey. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalm 121. I'm going to break it up into three sections, and we're going to look at three different words that remind us of, of God and who He is, His faithfulness, while we're on this journey I try to do some alliteration, so each word starts uh, with a P. It'll be easy to remember. Let's get right into it. The first word for part one here is, God is faithful while we're on this journey in his providence. We heard those words earlier from Beth as she recited them. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I was talking to some friends earlier this week about this psalm, and I was saying, you know, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. They're like, yeah, but we're in Florida. I mean, 
it's going to make no sense to the people that are hearing this sermon. And I said, you're right. Um, I was born in Bradenton, and on rare occasions have I seen mountains. But you know what? Here in, in Florida, um, we may not look up to the mountains with a sense of anxiousness. We might look up to clouds, thunderstorms, lightning, Hurricane Irma ring a bell to anyone, right? I was just looking through some old pictures of that and just reminded of the intensity of that storm. And for us, it may not be mountains that we look up to and feel a sense of anxiousness. There are other geographical circumstances that affect us. Basically, what's happening in this first verse right out of the gates is the psalmist is reminding the travelers that as they are on their way to Jerusalem, they are passing through mountain peaks and through these passages. And there are, there are certain sections where they are gonna feel vulnerable, right? Um, they, they are gonna be in a situation where robbers and thieves and bandits know that, that that's a place where they can attack those travelers. And so, in this case, these, these Israelites are traveling, they're lifting their eyes to the mountains, and they're not seeing it as inspiration as much as, the, as they're seeing it and they're feeling anxious about what is coming. And then verse 2, this, this reminder that the help as they journey comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But I want to look at this word, this first word, providence. What does it mean? Here's a, here's a simple definition just to kind of give you a framework um, and get our heads around this great word that, that helps us understand a bit of who God is. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining their properties. He cooperates with created things in every action and directs them to fulfill his purposes. What does that mean? He keeps them existing and maintaining. That means at a molecular level, at a biological level, both at the micro, even at the macro, it is God who holds the universe together. All things are held together by him. There is a cooperating with created things in every action. What does that mean? That means God, there's a relational component which God has with creation. He continues to, to direct and guide our steps and our journey. Um, there's a great story from Acts chapter 17 where Paul is on a journey. He's traveling through and he's, he's actually going through Athens. And, and as he's in this city, um, and Athens being very um, multicultural and the arts and, and poetry and, and the intellects that were there, he engages a group in a discussion, a very cerebral kind of high-level discussion around um, the maker of heaven and earth. And, and he's actually got them in this debate. And this is what Paul says that I think summarizes maybe, maybe as good as any text what God's providence means. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Okay, imagine he's looking around at these great epic architecture pieces and he's saying to them, this stuff, God is beyond this. He does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then in this, the quotes here, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a piece of poetry that uh, Paul snagged uh, from a Greek poet, an ancient Greek poet named Eratus. And, and in that piece, uh, Eratus writes this poem where he uses that line to actually describe Zeus's power. And, and here, Paul is using that piece to summarize there's something way beyond what you can see, what human hands have made. The providence of God is so much bigger than all of that. But what's the opposite of providence? There's a couple pieces of philosophy that I thought would be good to look at because it actually infiltrates our own thinking today, our own culture. Um, two two semi-familiar pieces of philosophy would be deism and pantheism. Okay, so deism would be this, this idea that God created the world and then essentially he abandoned it. All right? And if you think about it, this might be a lot of people you, you interact with at, at work, at school, in the neighborhood. There are a number of people who would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a, a follower of Jesus, but they might go so far as to say, I do believe that maybe there was a God who created at some point, but then left, abandoned, and, and walked away from creation. That would be deism. Or in pantheism, pan meaning all, and theism, God, there's this everything is God. God is not distinct from creation. This idea, I'm a Star Wars geek, right? So um, think of the force as you've watched those movies. That would be sort of a George Lucas idea of, uh, that's his version of pantheism. Now you might be thinking, okay, great, but I'm not, I'm not into deism, I'm no pantheist. Um, but you might be surprised how much we as Christians sometimes allow these strands of philosophy to infiltrate our own biblical understanding of God's providence. In fact, it often can affect how we feel in our faith, and it can impact how we pray. And the psalmist is saying here, recognizing that even as Christ's followers, we sometimes can drift in our theological understanding of God's providence. How many times have you or I on our journey looked up to the mountains, looked up to the clouds, looked around our circumstances? Situation going on at work, situation going on with a son or daughter, a family member, an illness, something that is, is having a huge impact and creating great anxiety in your own life. And what happens is we start wrestling with this idea. Does, does God hear my thoughts, my prayers? Maybe, maybe we're caught in a moment of panic. Students studying for an exam, maybe didn't study as hard as you should have, and uh, and in sort of almost in a pantheistic way, you just kind of throw up a, song, a, a prayer of any kind to anything or anyone that will listen. That's sort of a pantheistic, desperate attempt at, at help by anyone or anything. We sometimes do that and miss and forget the personal nature of God's providence, that he's engaged, that he's alongside, that he's cooperating, that the Holy Spirit is in relationship with us. And instead of sitting in a place of anxiousness, what does it look like to be at a place of, of anticipation and expectancy for what God actually wants to fulfill in our lives? Think of it this way. 
if we surveyed this room right now or everybody online, it would be easy. It would not take but a few seconds for every single one of us, no one would be exempt to think of something that we're feeling anxious about in our lives right now. And we've got such a tight grip on that, right? This is true for me. No one's exempt. I was thinking this morning of situations, challenges where I've got such a tight grip on something believing that I have to control the outcome. It needs to go the way I have it mapped out in my head. And, and I have it, uh, this idea that unless it happens this way, I'm a failure. Or, or the situation is not going to be as good as I think it should be. And I've got this death grip on this situation. Every one of us could think of something like that. And the psalmist is saying to us, instead of holding tightly, what does it look like to remember that God is providential in who he is and what he does, to hold that lightly and to see what he might do that would be beyond our imagination or any outcome that we could ever come up with. And the psalmist is reminding us of that. And so the question is, how's your grip? How are you holding on to that situation, that circumstance, that relationship, that, that issue that you think you're the one that has to resolve it and God is saying, lighten up, loosen up, let me take that on and watch what I will do, the maker of heaven and earth. We're reminded of this in Philippians 4, 6, an action that we can actually take. This is not all theory. This isn't just theology. This isn't just talk. Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, how do we move from anxiousness to anticipation? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. How often have you been in a, in a mode where what it took for you, we're, getting, uh, we're all getting alarms right now, amber alerts. How do you turn that off? Oh, there we go. Amber alert. Uh, if, if we need to notify you of anything, we will. I'm sure somebody will come up and tell me uh, any important news we need to hear. So, an action that we can take is to pray. How often have you been in a situation where you had that grip on whatever it is and somebody came along and reminded you, why don't you start counting the things that you can be thankful for right now? And you start writing that list down. And by the time you get down to the end of that piece of paper, you realize God has answered so much prayer. God has already intervened and taken action and is moving in ways so far beyond our imagination. That's what Paul is reminding us here in Philippians 4. So let's move to part two. God is faithful in his protection. So he's not only providential, but he's protective of his people. What does that mean? Let's look at the next few verses. We'll look at four of them all together here. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's a tricky piece of, of scripture to start with right there, right? He will not let your foot slip because how many of you have had your foot slip today or in the last 24 hours or 48 hours, right? And you read this and you go, what could the psalmist possibly mean? 
Well, first of all, there's, there's two parts to, to this, this question and answer. He will not let your foot slip. My wife was actually on a trip with Northland some years ago, and they hiked up Mount Sinai. And she called me from the top of the mountain and was explaining not only how beautiful it was, but how treacherous and dangerous, and from time to time, um, what could have been near catastrophic because it wasn't just often a rolling of an ankle or a, a little slip. There were actually crevices and places where if you fell, bones would break, right? And, and life could be lost. I mean, it was scary stuff. So part of what the psalmist is saying here is he will not let your foot slip. You have to think of it in the context of a mountain situation, particularly the type of mountains that you get in that part of the world. God will never let you be out of his reach. You will always be within his oversight. That's part of what he's saying here. But for, for those of us who can't help but to dig deeper, it actually raises some other questions, if we're honest. When our foot slips, when we go through a tough situation, when we go through a trial, something that's, that's a little off in our lives, it actually sometimes raises questions about God's goodness, right? If God is good, why would he allow this to happen? We would often say, I'm a pretty good person. I've not done a whole lot of bad in my life. Why would he let me go through these circumstances? And we struggle with that, and we begin to ask God these questions. And part of the way I think that can be answered this, it comes back and connects providence with God's protection, is we have to pay attention to some examples in Scripture that actually help us understand how to posture ourselves before God in this type of situation. Uh, actually, I'm going to read it um, off the screen. There's a great story. I'm going to go old school here with two stories, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter 3. Um, by the way, if you're looking to name a, a child you're expecting, go with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I'm sure there's, they'll be the only kids in their school being named that. Um, but here's a story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's one of the classic Old Testament stories that you might remember if you grew up in Sunday school when you were little. A story that reminds us of how we can posture ourselves, how we are supposed to come to God even in moments when our foot may slip, and we may not know what the result of our foot slipping could result in. Check it out. I'll just read the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, powerful ruler at the time, made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, basically 90 feet by 9 feet, a massive gold statue, um, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Sounds fun. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and, we, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But then catch this phrase, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. It's a great story. These guys had no idea what the outcome was going to be. They were putting their faith in the providence of God, even if he does not rescue them. 
You know what happened to them? They got thrown in the furnace, if you remember the story. Um, in fact, this, this statement that they made, King Nebuchadnezzar did not take it so well. He cranked up the furnace seven times hotter, if you remember the story. He had his guards take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them in the furnace. It was so hot that the guards burned and died as they went to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. And what happens, not only are the three of them then seen walking around the furnace, but they recognize a fourth image that's in there. And some think it was Jesus that joined them in that furnace. And the king went out of his mind, brought them back out, wanted to know how this could happen. And as he brought them out, not a hair on their head was singed. There was no smell of smoke on their clothing. And he worshiped God. But they had no idea. Often we, we like to know the end result. And if we can know the end result, then we want to say, I'll have faith in God. But God is saying to us, but even if it doesn't come out the way that we would expect, even if our foot slips, how are we going to trust in God's providence? Let's keep going. A um, couple more verses that we'll look at. Um, Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. What does that mean? Why, why this reference of slumbering and, and sleeping? Back during that time period, there were pagan gods that actually some felt needed naps. Right? These were not exactly the, um, the, the most glamorous of the gods, but um, some actually had to rest. And so some of these pagan gods, um, that's why um, the psalmist is refer- references. This, our God is different than those gods. Just to give you an example of this, there's a story in 1 Kings. This is the other uh, Old Testament story I want to tell, where the prophet Elijah, it's just him, And he's in a major confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And there's 450 of them and just Elijah. And basically, they are in a gathering, not just with the prophets, but imagine a whole assembly of people like this. And there are people who are trying to figure out who is God. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? And basically, what happens in chapter 18 of 1 Kings Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So what happens is they kind of go back and forth. And Elijah comes up with an idea. He says, let's do this. You prophets, build an altar, take wood, stack it up, get it nice and high, and then pray to Baal and ask him to send fire from heaven. And we'll know that Baal is God. Good? Good, they're with it. So they build the altar, stack the wood, and it says from morning till noon, they start praying and praying and praying, and nothing happens. Now, just to give you a little bit of an idea of the type of character Elijah was, I mean, this guy, just from what we read here, I can imagine he would be an interesting guy to hang out with. At noon, Elijah approached them and began to taunt them. He said, shout louder. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is in deep thought. Or maybe he's busy or perhaps traveling. Maybe, maybe he's even sleeping and, and he must be awakened. So they shouted louder. They danced more. And this went on all till the evening. No fire. Nothing happens. And so Elijah says, okay, my turn. He takes wood and he builds an altar. And then he says, 
get four big jugs of water. So they fill four large jugs of water. And he says, pour it over the wood. So they pour it all over the wood. You know what he says next? Do it again. And so they fill it up again, four large pitchers of water, and pour it over. You know what he says the third time? Do it again. So 12 pitchers of water poured over. How many of you tried to start a fire just with like wood that's slightly humid here in Florida and it just smokes and you cannot get anything to happen? 12 pitchers of water and Elijah prays. And it says that then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's an amazing testament to who God is. This witness of who he is as a God that never sleeps or slumbers. For a lot of years, one of my first prayers when I wake up in the morning as I'm trying to get conscious of what's going on around me, I often will pray right from this text. And I'll just say, God, thank you that even while my physical body needed rest, you were a God who never sleeps or slumbers. And all around this world, you continued to watch over all of us and continue to advance your good news. That's the God that, that we worship. And so let's look at um, a couple more verses and then we'll jump to this third part. Verses five and six, the Lord watches over you. The Lord's uh, your, your shield, your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. This is kind of easy for us to recognize, right? In, in Florida, sun, kind of what we have to do with, with sunscreen. That, that makes sense. Also, that type of climate, they would be very much in tune with that. But what about the moon by night? I don't, how does the moon harm you by night? Well, think about it. If you've ever had a conversation with someone, maybe usually it's like with my nine-year-old son. If he starts going crazy, just kind of behavior is all out of the, it's just, you know, out of control. Usually my wife or I, one of us will say, and you probably have said a question like this before, was there a full moon last night, right? And it's not just kids. I mean, adults can act a little weird too. And sometimes we all look around like, was there a full moon? That's where this comes from. Scientists and those who study behavior who note there seems to be a correlation there. What the psalmist is saying, not even the, the moon by night. It's, it's where we get the word lunatic from, from lunar. Yeah, and that's where that comes from. Nothing can harm us and take us out of God's protection. Let's look at the third part then. God is faithful in his promise. These last two verses. And then I'm going to tell you a really amazing story. The Lord will keep you from all harm. Again, this is another piece of, of text, kind of going back to what we talked about before, a little bit of hyperbole. But, um, of course, all of us have gone through situations where we've gone through harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over or guard, depending on the translation you have. You're coming and going both now and forevermore. This, these words of, of, of keep you and watching over or guarding, it, it's this Hebrew word shamar. The first time it's used in the Old Testament is actually from, from Genesis chapter 2, where um, God says to Adam and Eve to shamar over the garden to take care of it, to guard it, to watch over it, to tend to it. 
And of course, Adam and Eve fail at that. And then chapter 3 of Genesis, what does God do? He sends a cherubim, a type of angel, to shamar over the garden, to guard, to protect it, to keep it. And what we're being reminded of in this psalm is God's eternal shamar and His ever-present, daily, intimate watching over of each of us.